Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 9, The Remnant. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. Find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out 15. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. Malachi's forecast of a messenger identifiable as Elijah is the final line cast into the future in the owner's manual. You can count it as a parallel to Joel's moon turned to blood and so on. We are certain you've not forgotten what Malachi just happened to indicate with his first mention of the messenger. The bit about my coming to my temple... The only clue surrounding that coming, besides the Elijah messenger, of course, is a small, simple adverb with the word suddenly. Malachi is hoping you'll get the point that you need to be ready for the unanticipated. A brief look at what's been going on shows we have been charting an unforeseen course for some time already. The new temple, now hosting the returned remnant, is a mere shadow of what it was in the grandiose glory days of Solomon. The tears shed by the old folks in Ezra 3.10 at the laying of its new foundation are recalled in contrast to shouts of joy. While some may have wept with joy as they stood beside the joyful shouters, Others surely are weeping at the meager manifestation of our new house when they hold in their memories the splendor of our last one. This is a new beginning, and in more ways than one. We are shifting our tack significantly compared with what has come before. We are not headed for the splendor of Solomon again. He represents a pinnacle of multiple sorts along the way. The kingdom reaches its furthest borders and greatest wealth under his reign. His wisdom, a gift from me, of course all of it is, his wisdom is known far and wide. His building projects, which include my house along with his and a palace for one of his many wives, the pharaoh's daughter, as well as various cities and so on, these are the most extensive in our people's record. Second Chronicles 8 His was the time of greatest national presence and influence of pomp and circumstance in all of Israel's history. Solomon's wisdom may be known on distant continents, but it doesn't reach into nor govern his home life. His many marriages of smorgasbord-following women, whether motivated by politics, lust, or both, erode his faith and integrity. Reasoning that if he keeps his wives happy, they'll keep him happy, this great king who built the sumptuous edifice dedicated to me and my glory also builds shrines to his wives' other gods. Then... Solomon's lack of wisdom in child-rearing splinters the kingdom as his son doesn't have the sense to govern with benevolence rather than braggadocio. 
The kingdom that had reached its pinnacle is rent asunder within a few years of its zenith. What had taken centuries to build is lost to sin, to lust, pride, greed, all the products of trusting not in me but in self, which has become clear at this point in the owner's manual as humanity's chronic default setting. Faithful heroes rise and fall, and the cycle of faithlessness gives way to repentance for a time. But we are not pinning the Abraplan's success on the ability of the human race to remain continually faithful to us and the way. You are unable to do so, and needed to know it. Human pride, however, could not believe the truth of inability simply by being told. Pride doesn't listen. Pride has to discover things for itself and then think it's come up with a new idea on its own, when all the time I have been trying to tell you the exact same thing. In the people's pivotal confession of their personal and historical inability to remain on the way, humanity's absolute universal need for our intervention is crystallized in an anchoring moment of discernment. Of course, if you prefer to wallow in your brokenness and pain caused by all the pride and sin of every human interacting with the pride and sin of every other human, you can choose to do so. However, if you come to the same conclusion to which that remnant of people in Jerusalem came around 2,500 years ago, that when you rely on yourself instead of me, you end up in exile, you can take comfort in knowing that our purpose in nurturing such insight is not so we can beat you over the head with your inability. It's so you will recognize your need to look up to me. Once you do, you'll see that I have been reaching my hand out to help you up this whole time. I'm not offering my hand to you in order to simply pull you up out of the muck of the mess you're in, though that's a necessary good beginning. I bring with me not only rescue from devastation and destruction, I am here to offer you far more than just survival. Get out your owner's manual one last time and look back on the final section of the final chapter of Zephaniah's brief book. Zephaniah 3, 14-17. Uh, just leave it open there as we'll track with it a while here. Yes, I will take away the judgments against you and even turn away your enemies. But this will not merely put you in a place of relief at having avoided ruin. I am not moving all of heaven and earth towards your salvation so you can simply wipe your brow in the end and say, Phew! As Malachi has just promised, so did Zephaniah back in his days, in the days of the last good king, Josiah. Zephaniah 1.1 Zephaniah looked forward to the climax of all things. I will be with you myself. Ezekiel 37, 27. Yahweh, your God, is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. 
Then I will need to be a warrior no more. The battle will be over. The war will be won. And in my love I will no longer rebuke you. I will not be there to reprimand you over this or that, to tell you what a bad boy or girl you've been, enumerating transgressions and missed opportunities. I will not be saying what a disappointment you've been. No, no, not hardly. No, I will rejoice over you. I will be telling you how happy you've made me, how long I've waited for this moment, how you are worth every single thing it took to get you back. I will have dealt with every mistake you've ever made and then promptly forgotten each and every one of them. I won't be scolding, I'll be singing over you rejoicing with all my great might over finally getting to see you face to face and hold you in my arms. Zephaniah takes us to that final moment, opening by telling you to sing, shout, rejoice, and exult at your rescue. Zephaniah ends with me doing the same things with you with me singing in joy because of you, friend, with me rejoicing over you with infinite gladness at there finally being absolutely nothing between you and me. The sin and brokenness, the pain and hurt, the cruelty and suffering, the loneliness and despair, all of it gone gone for good. And that word exult in most of your manuals? One last translation note, because of the archaic feel of exult, many translations substitute rejoice, requiring then the substitution of be glad for the command to rejoice that precedes exult. They're all in the right neighborhood, but you know me. Exalt is a superlative that carries even more weight than the word overjoyed. It's an ecstatic elation that literally has to burst out of you in singing, shouting, and dancing, which is why I like to use exalt so much, since it carries with it the image of leaping and dancing. Remember those calves leaping from their winter stalls? In Malachi 4.2, that's going to be me all over. My outstretched hand, then, is not merely an offer to help you get your act together and clean yourself up. We are on a far greater mission than that. Take my hand, friend, and by the time we are through, will bring you to a jubilant bash the likes of which the earth has never seen. And you and I shall dance like there's no tomorrow. Isaiah likens this summons to an invitation to an abundant feast of rich food and wine where you will finally be satisfied. Come, all you who were thirsty, come to the waters. 
and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Isaiah 55, we strongly and superlatively urge you to read the entire chapter. I will slake your thirst and satisfy the hunger you have never been able to sate with the other things you've pursued in your life. Hear me now when I call you to forsake the world's emptying ways and sit at the feast table we have prepared for you where there is an abundance of joy and of pardon, where the mountains and hills burst into song and the trees clap their hands as my delight at your presence erupts through all my works. All things are ready. Come to the feast. Isaiah urges you to seek me while I may be found. Call upon me while I am near. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. See, you should have just read the whole chapter. Call upon me while I am near. Well, I am right here, friend. Take my hand and join me in an eternal feast. An exulting dance that can start right now and last forever. I am the finest partner you'll ever have, the one meant for you from the very beginning. Consider this your personal engraved invitation to the ball, the ultimate event you don't want to miss, dear friend. All the imagery we have employed, all the colorful hyperbolic language, every word, picture, and parable makes this single point. The ball we are planning will be worth whatever it takes to get there, on your part and ours. And I can promise you this. It'll be here before you know it. The Abra plan is going to make a tectonic shift very soon. When it does, the closing of the narrative in this volume of Tom points to our not simply doing things over the same way again. Those who think that Messiah is coming to restore the kingdom to Solomonic proportions aren't looking closely enough at what's going on as we leave our people there in Jerusalem with Joel and Malachi's words ringing in their ears. Yes, they are worshipping me in a temple that's been rebuilt against all odds. It is a fine structure, but more serviceable than magnificent. They themselves are a mere representative remnant, not a kingdom, enough to signify the twelve tribes, but only symbolically. They do not inhabit the promised land to its full borders by any stretch of the imagination. They are still only living in what remains of the southern kingdom, and it is still someone else's land. They are there at the pleasure of the emperor of Babylon, 
Yes, of course, I have made this all come to pass in order to move the Abra plan forward, but it all points to the next chapter being quite unlike the ones before. We are not going to be walking the path of human glory next time. As part of our people's education, we allowed them to have their way in claiming a human king in addition to, though usually instead of, me. We promised and gave them the very kingdom they were hoping for, a player on the world stage, a power to be respected and reckoned with, all of which is all but gone now. Of course, my promise to David that one of his line would reign on his throne forever, Second Samuel 7, 12 to 16, Psalm 89 makes clear this promise is still in place and that the people rely heavily upon it. My promise to David that one of his line would reign on his throne forever still stands as a key to unlocking the Abra plan. However, until the one who truly fulfills that role comes, there will be a few pretenders. Israel will not achieve anything close to her formal glory. This was promised in the final days of Zedekiah, our people's final profane and wicked king. We ordered him through Ezekiel, Ezekiel 21, 25-27, to remove the crown of kingship. We stated plainly that there was no going back to the way things were, and that the crown will not be restored until he to whom it rightfully belongs shall come. To him I will give it. Until that happens, what you see right now in the far less significant state of the remnant is what you get. This greatly humbled circumstance in which we leave our children in Jerusalem at the close of Nehemiah and the final prophets of the owner's manual is a quiet indicator that diminutive representative remnant of that once mighty kingdom signals a different course when we take our next steps on the way to the climax of the Abra plan. Yes, the king is coming. However, look not for a national political and military resurgence against the powers of earth. When our kingdom comes, it will not look like one of yours. Expect the unexpected. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. Use the link to the very first episode from our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's episode has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way, and until next time, be good to yourself.